I want to tell you a story about a young pastor. He finished seminary, and before he would serve in a church, he decided for his own reason that he is going to be a policeman for a period of time. And so he went to a police academy for six months, and then came the time for him to do the examination. So he passed his physical exam, he passed his mental alertness exam, he passed his test of reacting quickly and wisely in emergency, and finally came the oral examination. And the examiner asked the question, what would you do to disperse a frenzied crowd? He thought for a moment, and he said, I'll take up a collection. (laughs) Now, I think the Apostle Paul somehow understood that he did not want to disperse a frenzied crowd, and that is why he left the issue of money giving to the last chapter, not the first. I think if he started with it, people would have said, well, I don't want to hear that. Close the book. But he left it to the end. But there is a serious side as to why the Apostle Paul left this all-important matter of stewardship, financial stewardship, all the way to chapter 16. In fact, Martin Luther said, the last part of the body that gets baptized is the pocket that contains the wallet. (laughs) But here's why the great apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decided to teach on giving immediately after he was teaching on the resurrection of Jesus and our own resurrection. As if he's getting ready to close the, the, the book, as he finished the epistle, the apostle said, now concerning the collection. You have to ask the question, why? <laughs> why, after he reached heaven itself, why must he go back to the nitty-gritty issues of money and giving of money. Why? And I'm telling you, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it because the apostle is going to answer it. Because heaven and money are interrelated. Heaven and money giving are intertwined. Heaven and money giving are intrinsically linked. Money and how you use money is closely tied up to the mansion in the sky. And that's precisely what the Bible teaches. This is not just one verse taken out of context. This is the entire biblical teaching. For example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19, he said, when you give here and now, that determines what kind of foundation you're laying up in heaven, in your eternal home. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, He said, what you send on to heaven by giving here and now will not only be waiting for you there, it will be multiplied. Jesus is saying that whatever you give to His kingdom here on earth, you will never lose. In fact, I tell people my statement of net worth is what I gave away. That is your true statement of net worth. Jesus said, the thief will not steal that money that you gave to the Lord, and the rust will not destroy it. Listen to me. I know the stock market can collapse. I know that the price of gold and silver can crumble. I know that the value of the dollar can tank. But what you give to the Lord will never, never, never not bear dividends. 
here and now and for eternity. Look with me again in detail, 1 Corinthians 16, but particularly verse 2. Here's the apostle reaching and teaching us a profound truth about giving. He is saying that when we give back to God, it ought not to be haphazardly. When we give back to God, it ought not to be in response to some emotional appeal. When we give to God, it ought not to be in response to whoever screams the loudest, or it not to be done out of feeling of guilt and whomever makes you feel guilty. Here in 1 Corinthians 16, the Word of God is helping us to exercise our spiritual responsibility toward laying up treasures in heaven. And it goes as follows. Remember those three points? I'm going to come back to them again and again. He is teaching us to give with a planned regularity. He is teaching us to give with personal responsibility. And then he's teaching us, thirdly, to give proportionately. The one thing that you will notice about biblical giving, it is not based on impulse. How do I know that? (laughs) Because the Word of God here speaks about the collection in the context of the triumph of the resurrection. In the same breath where the Apostle Paul speaks of the fundamental doctrine the core, the rock bed of the Christian faith, namely the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he speaks about the offertory. In the same breath, he moves immediately from the triumph of the resurrection to the triumph of the collection. And the Apostle Paul here is obviously answering some questions that the Corinthians, we saw that in the very beginning. Corinthians were asking questions. How do I give? Where do I give? How? And he answers all these questions, so, but I don't want you to miss what he did not say. I don't want you to miss what he did not say. He did not say, give if you feel like it, or give out of sentiment and emotions— or give out of impulse or crisis, or give because some snake oil salesman tells you that you will get rich and you're going to make him be able to buy his newest jet. No, that is not biblical. The Apostle Paul, who could have drawn a word picture to depict the desperate needs of the saints, he did not. He could have sent him a picture of an emaciated uh, little child and moved them to tears and reach out for their pocket, but he did not. Why? Because none of that is a biblical giving. Listen to me. I know that we need to move by needs, but I am telling you, the Apostle Paul wanted to teach us to give based on principle, not on impulse. He wanted them to develop a holy habit, not a holy huddle mentality. Now, I want to get back to those three important principles that the Apostle Paul is teaching here. He said, we give with a sense of planned regularity. Look at verse 2 with me, please. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum. Grammar is very important in this particular I'll refer to it a couple of times. 
because it's an emphatic mood. You say, what does that mean? Why is that? Because Paul wants to drive home the point on the first day of the week. Why is the first day of the week an emphatic? Why is that important? Because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. Jesus appeared to the disciples twice. Every time was on the first day of the week. The early Christian church, who were all Jewish, remember that, they were all Jewish. They changed from worshiping on Saturday to Sunday because of this all-significant event of the resurrection. The first day of the week was far more significant to the early church than we can ever imagine because we did not live there and we only read about it. But listen to me. Think with me. Think with me. They saw with their own eyes their Lord, whose eyes have been closed in death. They saw their Lord, whose lips were stilled in death. They saw uh, the Lord, whose body was placed in the cave of death. But then, on the third day, on Sunday morning, early hours of Sunday morning, he opened up that grave, and he walked out, leaving an empty tomb. And that is why they immediately began to gather every early Sunday mornings, every early Sunday morning, to celebrate the glorious resurrection event. That was the beginning of it. And in the beginning, they had no meeting place, so they would meet in a corner in the temple. And then they began to gather in cemeteries where they've deposited the loved ones. And then they began to gather in catacombs and finally house churches. They did this to celebrate the resurrection and bring the collection. Both go hand in hand. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. You miss out on a blessing. But if we truly comprehend that giving is to be in the context of the resurrection— then we would stand up every Sunday morning as we come to worship and say and sing, Up from the grave He arose. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. And then deposit our collection at the altar. Why? Because our giving is an integral part of our personal celebration of Jesus' resurrection and the anticipation of our own resurrection, as we saw from chapter 15. And that is why the Apostle Paul, exactly what he meant by planned regularity. I think most of us live a very ordered life. Now, some may not, but most people live a regular, regulated life. We annually pay our taxes. We regularly pay our mortgage. We dare not deprive the utility company of their monthly check. We go to work at a certain time, and we come home at a certain time. I say most people are punctual. None of us, of course, can claim that we can live haphazardly, which actually reminds me of a man who was an extremely punctual man. Now, I don't know about you. I, I like punctuality. But this particular man lived with an exact, precise routine— I mean, there's no grace a couple of minutes here or a couple of minutes there. This man for eight years lived exactly the same way every day, every morning. His alarm would go off at 6.30 in the morning. He briskly shaves and, and showers and eats breakfast, brushes his teeth and picks up his briefcase. And then he goes to the car and he drives to the ferry landing. And there he parked and then he rode the ferry to Manhattan. And 
gets out of the ferry in Manhattan, walks briskly into the elevator on the 17th floor where he worked, and hung his coat, and put his briefcase on the desk, and then he opened his briefcase, put the papers in there, and he sat down at his chair right on 8 o'clock. Not 8.01, and not 7.59. I mean, you called that punctual, right? He followed that routine faithfully for eight years. Until one morning, his alarm didn't go off on time, and he woke up 15 minutes late, and he was panic-stricken. So he rushed through the shower and nicked himself shaving, and he gobbled down his breakfast and halfway brushed his teeth and jumped in the car, sped to the ferry landing, and he jumped out of his car and started looking for the ferry, and here it is, but only a couple of feet away from the water. And he said, I think I can make it, I think I can make it, and he leaped up and he jumped with a thud on the floor of the ferry. And the captain rushed downstairs, and he saw that... He checked, was checking to see if the man is all right, and he said, Man, that was enormous leap. But if you had waited another minute, we would have reached the dock and you could have walked in. <laughs> it was coming in instead of leaving. Now, beloved friends, punctuality in giving makes both spiritual and practical sense. So it's planned regularity. Secondly, he said that our giving is an individual responsibility. Every one of them. And he said that. Look at verse 2 again with me, chapter 16. He said, on the first day of the week, each, can you say that with me? Each one of you should sit aside. Each one of you. When the Apostle Paul said, each, each of you is in the emphatic position, which means it towers above the other words. The word each, say it again. Towers over them. What does that mean? Each one of us means no exception. No exception. No exception. Look, I try to put myself in the place of the Apostle Paul. Probably I would have made some exceptions. Probably. As if you followed the series of messages, we've seen how not many of the Corinthians were really powerful people or rich people, and he says that. He said, not many of you are prominent. They were very ordinary people. In fact, they were modest means. But the apostle exempted no one. This is the most amazing thing, that each of you, each of you, that is personal responsibility. I was ordained into the ministry, and I was unfaithful with my tithe and offering. It's the absolute truth. I'm going to explain to you. See, I tried to explain to God that I have given myself full-time to the ministry. Therefore, I don't need to tithe. And I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit was very clear. Yusuf put the cash in there. (laughs) Every time. But in those days, I used to think that I could bargain with God. I really did. (laughs) Until 1972, that was the beginning of God working on on me. That's my first year in seminary, 1972. And I was working in a parish, in a church, as a student pastor, not far from the city of Sydney. It's an older suburb, and so many of the parishioners were widows. Uh, They were shut-ins, and they couldn't even come to church. And so I went and asked the rector, I said, can I take one afternoon 
every week and go and visit these people. And I tell you, it was the highlight of my year. Most of them, as I said, were elderly and widows and living on what we call social security, period. And after I visit with them and I pray with them and and about to leave, invariably, invariably, one of them would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't leave yet. I have not been able to take my envelopes. The church as a denomination used to send out 52 envelopes. Every Sunday, people put the money in the envelopes and put it in the offering plate. And so they would say, wait a minute, I haven't been able to take the money to the church. I haven't been able to find somebody that will take it. And there may be two, three, or four envelopes left, and they have them stacked up, and they will hand it to me. And I'm confessing to you what went on through my mind when I held onto those envelopes. And it's to my shame. I would hold these envelopes in my hand, and I look at the conditions where they were living, and I'm tempted to say, Oh, no, not you. Not you. You can't afford this. We need to come here and help you out. Why? Because I was unfaithful in my giving. But thank God I've never done it. Had I done that, I would have deprived these precious people of unspeakable blessings that comes from giving back to God. Now, you have to understand, my attitude was that exact opposite of the Lord Jesus Christ, is exact opposite of the Lord Jesus. That was my attitude, because His last act of public ministry, when He stood there over against the treasury in the temple, watching as these individual wealthy ones coming with music and trumpet, and they deposit their gifts in the treasury box with song and dance and noise, and they were giving out of pittance out of their wealth. And there he watched and saw a poor widow, probably was hiding and probably was not trying to show what she has in her hand, and it was a mite. Our precious Lord Jesus, whose eyes penetrate into the very secrets of our hearts, knew that this was her all. It wasn't 10%, 20%, or 30%. It was her all. And instead of Jesus saying to her, stop, you cannot do this. You cannot afford this. You are too poor to do this. You need to go inside and see the priests. They can help you. No. Our Lord commended her for all of the ages. And here we are in the 21st century talking about her. Our Lord said, look at her. Look at what she did. And then he went out and did exactly the same. He gave his all. He gave his life. Beloved, the principle of personal responsibility and stewardship cannot be avoided. Listen to me again. The principle of individual stewardship cannot be avoided. You try all you want. If you try to do it according to the Word of God, or if I try to stop you, I would be stopping the possibility of God absolutely blessing you in every way. The only time God invited us as people, as His followers, as His children, to test Him. You remember in the wilderness, the temptation said to the, He said to the devil, you must not test the Lord your God or put your God to the test. But there's only one time in the entire Bible that God said, test me, and that's in the area of money giving. He said, test me and see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven. 
and pour out much blessings. Planned regularity, personal responsibility, and the third thing which actually drives the first two, proportionate return. On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum in keeping with his income, the NIV said, but I like the old translation, as God has prospered you. As God has prospered you. I love that. That's actually closer to the meaning. It means returning to God a portion of what God has blessed you with. Now, beloved, listen to me. The marvelous wisdom of God, listen to me, the marvelous wisdom of God's teaching here is it places the burden where the burden belongs, and the burden is not on you. Where is the burden placed? On God. It completely rests with God, thus making the whole issue of stewardship as a matter of prospering activities in your life. When the tide comes in, and you have great material blessings, you return to Him the same percentage as when the tithe goes out. And it comes in and goes out to all of us. And my beloved friends, that means that the basis of our giving is God's blessings in our lives. That's the basis. And no one, no one, no one, no one can cheat God. If you don't believe me, Ask somebody who tried. As far as God is concerned, when you are faithful with a dollar, you're going to be faithful with a million dollars. That's the principle in which Jesus said. He was faithful with little, going to be faithful with much. But I can hear somebody saying, well, you see, Michael, Paul didn't say anything about 10%. He didn't say anything about tithing. You're right. You're listening carefully. You're reading carefully because he didn't have to say it. Dr. Lenzel has done the most massive work on a book which he calls The Sacred Tenth. In that book, he demonstrates from ancient literature that the earliest people, the earliest people from the Arcadians to the Samaritans and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and even the, the Hebrew people who taught us that 10% is the minimum. They all have practiced what they call the sacred tenth. Why? Because we're created in God's own image, and because Adam and Eve was instructed to offer a sacrifice to God, and therefore they passed it on. Even when these nations have become pagan, they still practice the sacred tenth. Abraham gave the sacred tenth of his entire net worth, not just his income, to Melchizedek, who's a type of Christ. That was 400 years before the law was given to Moses. So nobody tells me that's legalistic. <laughs> Proportionate giving is both fair and flexible. If God had thundered from heaven and says, I want every one of you to give $10,000, that would not be fair, would it? For some people with large income, that wouldn't even touch their lifestyle. For prosperous students, <laughs> they probably haven't seen $10,000. And that is why God does not thunder from heaven an amount that tells us everybody should. No, he said proportionate. Now, here's a use of opinion. You know what to do with it, okay? When the tide of life comes in, 
The tenth is a starting place. When the tide of life goes out, the tenth is the minimum. Some time ago when I lived in Southern California, I was working in a church part-time to help me with my graduate studies, and, and I would drive on Wednesdays and on Sundays from Pasadena to Van Nuys. And then I'll be driving this long distance. I discovered a preacher on radio during that time, and he was wonderful. He just lifted me up and encouraged me. And I remember one day, and you still remember it 40-plus years later. I still remember it. He said, when the pastor says, pick up your hymnals. Well, we don't have hymnals now, but people say, amen. When the pastor says, pick up your Bibles, people say, glory. And when the pastor says, reach out for your pocketbook, Many people saw me. (laughs) Paul's final message to the Corinthians is to give with planned regularity, personal responsibility, and proportionately. I have learned through the years in the continents that I've served in that sermons on giving never move anybody to give. (laughs) You say, Michael, why are you doing it? Because it's in the Word of God. But I just learned that through the years. It's never going to move you. Unless the Holy Spirit set you free, a sermon cannot do it. But I want to leave you with a story that was told by the former Catholic Archbishop of Paris, France, where he was preaching in the Notre Dame Cathedral. He told that story. Listen carefully. He said there were three young men in that same church many years ago, many years earlier. They were profane, they were godless, and they were worldly. And two of the three wagered the third. They took a bet that he would go into the confessional and he give the priest a bogus confession. And so, What happened, as they were talking about this, the priest could hear them, and he knew what they were up to. So this man comes in, the young man comes in, and he gives this bogus confession about all these terrible things that he has done, which he hasn't done, but he he gave that bogus confession, and then he comes out, but before he leaves, the priest said to him, he said, you need to go and do penance. He said, what would that be? He said, I want you to go and kneel in the island there before the great cross, and I want you to say three times, and you must be three times, as you look at wounded love, as you look as bleeding mercy, and I want you to say the following words, I know you did this for me, but I don't care a damn. The young man returns to his friends and He's trying to collect the money. I said, oh, no, 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 no. What is the penance? He told him, we're not going to pay until you go and do the penance. So the young man kneels before that great crucifix, and he looks at that wounded love and bleeding mercy, and he begins to form the words on his mouth. I know you did this for me, but… and he couldn't finish. He tried again. I know you did this for me, but… And he could not come up with the words out of his mouth. 
And then the former Archbishop of Paris said, I was that young man. I was that young man. Beloved, my beloved friends, I want you to take those three biblical principles, this biblical teaching, and you look at the risen Savior, the center of our faith, and look at wounded love, look at bleeding mercy, and look at the empty tomb, and say, I know I'm supposed to be a responsible steward, but I don't care. I don't believe for a moment anybody here or even watching around the world will be able to do that. I really don't believe it. I believe all of us would want to say, I want to give with planned regularity, and I want to give with personal responsibility, and I want to give proportionately. But I know that this message may be premature for you, that you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. This is premature for you, because the Lord wants you before He wants of the resources that He gave you. He wants through your repentance, and He wants your faith, and He wants your surrender to Him before He wants what He's given you. It is my ardent prayer that for those who know the Lord, have been walking with the Lord for years, and sat back, and sat back, and sat back, and said, somebody else would do it, somebody else would do it, and you're missing out on the unbelievable blessing that God could absolutely open the windows of heaven, as He Himself promised. I pray that you'll commit to saying, Lord, today I'll become a brand new steward of all the resources that you placed in your hand. So help me, Lord. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.